0: I'm Jeff Smith, and welcome to The Secrets of Success. Throughout my life, I've been fascinated by one single question, and it's how do successful people become successful? What is it that makes that big difference in our lives? Over the last 40 years, I've interviewed rich people, famous people, and many millionaires to find out their secrets of success, and my aim is to share them here with you. Of course, success is not always measured in money, and in these programmes, I'm looking at many different success stories from people in all walks of life. I want to find out what makes them tick, how they overcame adversity to keep on going, and I want to extract those magical nuggets of wisdom, so that you too can implement the secrets of success into your own life. In today's episode, I'm talking with Jan Cavell. Jan is the author of Scale for Success, which is a book aimed at helping entrepreneurs to grow their business during the leap from 1 million to 10 million having micro businesses herself in the past things collapsed for jan and she found herself as a single mom on social support needing to make a future for her family she started off by selling an assortment of goods to get by which refined itself into being furniture to ensure a steady supply she didn't do things by halves she then went into manufacturing built the business, up to 50 employees and won many awards over the next couple of decades. But then she lost her passion and the reasons for doing it, coupled with increased problems with errors in the foundations of the business when she first started it up. And she walked away from it all virtually overnight. After that, she soon got bored. She missed writing articles for business publications and decided to start writing books to help entrepreneurs. This is a story of starting up in business and getting the foundations completely wrong, losing your passion and then following your childhood dreams to rediscover your passion and to live your purpose. Let's bring in the amazing woman herself. Welcome to the show, Jan Cavell. Jeff, I'm thrilled
1: to be here. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Honestly, oh, yeah. honest, but brilliant.
0: <laughs> it's wonderful to have you here today. You look amazing. How are you?
1: Okay, thank you. A little bit frazzled, but uh, <laughs> post, post my second book
0: launch. But
1: uh, oh, yeah. good, Good, Getting good, good.
0: There. Well, I do want to find out about your first and your second book. But before we do that, Jan, I want to find out a little more about you. So, three questions to get us going. Where were you born? What was life like for you as a child? And what were your dreams and aspirations as you were growing up? Well, I was born in
1: Sussex. And I was born, born or well, not literally born, but brought up from, from birth on a farm. So, it, as in those generations, it was uh, it was very um, antisocial as, as a life because my parents were both hugely involved, flat out with running the farm all the time. Um, I had a very much older sister who I had very little to do with and... Of course, I mean, my mother didn't drive. Very few people did comparatively. So, you know, so we were there in the middle of nowhere. So my big companions were were books, you know, and I became this massive reader. So that's always been a a real uh, motivating, central thing in my life. I still read copiously all the time.
0: So when you were young then on the farm, what kind of books were you enjoying at that time?
1: A mixture, real mixture. Um, my mother read me the classics, uh, which, you know, whereas other kids probably were getting Beatrix Potter, Potter. We did cover Beatrix Potter, in fairness, but she worked her way through virtually every Dickens and most of Shakespeare, um, which was good for the education. It took me a while to get over liking them, actually. I think I'd, I'd overdosed on both. But uh, but yeah, so that, that taught me a lot about language. And for me, the books were um, a lot of children's classics, a lot of American children's classics in particular, but not solely. Um, you know, the Little Women, Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer, and uh, and, and many more. And, the, you know, earlier on, it was the Just William books, if you possibly remember those, Rachel Compton. And so, so quite um, laddish, I guess. <laughs>
0: So what what was life like for you on the farm? Were you brought into daily duties?
1: I wasn't too much. I actually was quite ill as a child. Um, so so again the books were were a godsend. Um, I had had a curious complication which they took ages to find. It's very common actually but uh, in those days they hadn't fully discovered it and I have three kidneys.
0: Oh. Oh, I had not heard of that one before. That I, I do try and be different. <laughs> but
1: because they're cramped as a child, it meant they were one of the sort of double-sided one was uh, not operating properly. And uh, so it didn't get rid of any, any bug whatsoever. It wrecked my immune system. So, uh, so it took them, took them a long time to find it. Okay. Uh, so I was constantly ill.
0: So out of the three kidneys, only one of them worked then?
1: Basically, yeah. Yeah,
0: okay. I've not heard that one before. <laughs> okay, so what were your dreams and aspirations as you were growing up?
1: I think, uh, you know, I did uh, really love the idea of being an almost originally. I mean, I was a great fan of Joe jo from Little Women and, you know, her whole attitude to life of, you know, I, ca- I can do this all myself. Um, which probably stuck behind me, really. But uh, so, so that and the writing. Uh, I, once I got a little bit older, I loved the idea of being a journalist rather than a, an author, that sort of spot for a while. But then I didn't, uh, I don't think my parents would have funded, funded university anyway. Uh, and I didn't do well enough at maths, which was, essential in those days to study journalism (laughs) quite why i'm not sure but uh so so yeah it all sort of faded out with journalism but i desperately wanted to be a journalist
0: okay so with your kidney illness what was school Mm. like was that was that normal for you were you able to attend attend as other kids did
1: yeah it was fairly normal i mean um You know, for some some reason, well, no, not for some reason at all, actually, because in in hope that I was over it all, and my parents were quite a bit older. um, In fact, uh, what happened was they dispatched me to boarding school fairly young, which was possibly unwise, especially as they chose a really sporty one which, of course, I couldn't do at all. I mean, there was no way I was up to it physically, which, which is quite cruel for a child. You, you send a child to a school that's sporty, who can't do it, and it's rough. Um, so, so, yeah, that was up schooling, I guess. And then later on, I went, they brought me to a different school, which was still sporty and, and non-academic um, and very social with it. Lots of deportment and very
0: little science okay so you went through school did you go to college
1: i didn't know i well i went to a level college because i wanted out of school school so i persuaded my parents to let me go to london and study there which um was was great fun it was disastrous as schooling went and uh, they wrote my parents a report saying they'd love to, which was very brief, it just said something along the lines of um, we'd love to give Jan a report, but unfortunately we haven't seen enough of her to do so. Okay. Which my parents weren't terribly amused about.
0: So when your schooling finished then, what did you do with yourself?
1: Well, I, I needed to get work. Um, you know, I was really drifting, but I needed to um, be able to eat and have a life and so I took on jobs Um, a lot of them were sales oriented which was useful all all of them were short lived (laughs) Um, and I, I mean I did as I say I did sales jobs I did Dishwashing jobs, it, 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 I wasn't particularly bothered, you know, I wasn't going anywhere. And eventually, well, not I say eventually, after a year or so of that, I decided that really I was a bit brassed with the idea of working for other people and there must be a better way of doing it. And I, I took a job, I think that the first clue was I took a job with a picture researcher, which started right up my street. It was Box again, you know. And uh, she she worked from home in a in a rambling flat at the back of Notting Hill, and I'd turn up in the mornings, and the chances are she wouldn't be up. And last night's wine bottles would be strewn all over the table, and the thing would be chaos. And then when she finally surfaced after several cups of coffee, we would work very very hard, and it was very interesting. And that whole sort of vibe of being able to work when you wanted to work and having that freedom and being at home and combined with hard, interesting work, you know, I have thought I'd fallen into something that was absolutely me. And, and so from then on, I tended to do those sort of setups doing various sort of things. I mean, I did more freelance work for her initially, I think. But uh, but yeah, lots of lots of different things, but all for me rather than traipsing off to some tedious office and being told what to do.
0: Okay, so that happened. You met your man. You got married. You had kids. I did. I did. Things didn't work out. You find yourself as a single mum. You're on social support. Oh, what's happening for you now? <laughs>
1: Um, lots of shocks, lots of upsets. It was a messy divorce. <coughs> um, and uh, yeah, I, I was very, very broke out a tiny cottage, um, which I did have a roof over our heads, but clearly the roof wasn't going to stay there unless I earned some money. And I went to uh, thinking, thinking, what on earth can I do? I didn't want to go out to work, partly because it didn't suit me, partly because I wasn't qualified, and more, most of all because I didn't want to leave the children. And so I thought, well, you know, it's, it's back to old home week. I've got to do something at home that I can generate an income by selling a service, a commodity or something, you know, which I've done before, but try and do it better. Uh, and uh, so, so I went to social support um, up at Barry St Edmunds, not far from where I was at the time, and made an appointment. And I went in and I said, um, you know, obviously I've got to sign on and I, or re-sign on or whatever I was there in the first place. But what I really wanted to do is start a business. And they looked at me and thought, you know, in those days, pretty crazy. And I said, well, yeah, but, you know, I'm going to need some money to do it. Will you keep paying me while I do it? Because, of course, it was against the rules. And they scratched their heads, and luckily they agreed to do it, which I'm sure it would be unheard of. Now I was so lucky. I think it was just because nobody had suggested something so ridiculous. (laughs) Um, And they certainly wouldn't have gone on paying me the doll or something for being out of work, but they did so. They, They paid income support which was enough to, to keep us going in a very meagre way, while for, for a couple of years, well, I got something off ground.
0: Well, there's a lesson there in that if you don't ask, they can't They're say fair. yes. Yeah,
1: yeah. even yeah. the strangest people.
0: Yeah. Okay, <laughs> so this business that you set up, what were you doing?
1: Well, um, I thought, you know, sales is still back to the obvious answer. You know, it's cheap to set up. Um, I got a, a fax phone, which I think I had or got second hand, and uh, a card index box because we didn't have computers. It was pre-computers. I'm sure one or two people had computers, but it was pretty even being commonplace. And I'd worked in with with furniture and bits and pieces a bit with my ex-husband, um, who'd been on the interior design side. So I thought, well, okay, you know, there must be things that interior designers need. So, you know, I I got together a, a, a as you rightly say, a chaotic sort of mix of <sighs> candlesticks and odd bits of furniture and whatever, and and used the last tiny gap on my credit card to do the a leaflet that I, whenever I remember it, I think. How did you send that? <laughs> it was so abysmal, <laughs> but uh, out it went, um, you know, and I and I remember actually talking to one designer, down and London, and he looked me up and down. And he said, did "You do realise you're only as good as your brochure." And I thought, "Yeah, <laughs> oh dear," <laughs> but um, but yeah, I, I mean, most of all, I persevered on the phone because you know I had had that training and had an idea of what it takes to, to build relationships on on a phone and do it slowly over a period of time so it's a genuine relationship based on genuine need. And at the same time, I was learning what those genuine needs were, which was invaluable because as I refined what I was doing, of course, you know, it was all matching to customer. And um, there's a great advantage in... Absolutely not knowing anything very much about what you're doing because you don't get precious about it and you don't um, think, you know, I've got to sell this wonderful thing that is so brilliant. You know, you're just thinking I've got to sell something because I've got to feed my children, which uh, does free it
0: up a bit. Indeed. You're talking about the emotional attachments to the products you're selling, aren't you?
1: Yeah, you know, and I see it so much, and, and I'm sure you do too, this conviction that, you know, you've got this amazing product, which is not actually based in market research or, you know, even talking to a customer. Um, it is just based on somebody's conviction that it is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that often ends in disaster, Um you know, it's, it's very dangerous for a writer to, <laughs> you know, because you tend to want to write about what you know or what you believe or whatever, and you've no idea how it's going to connect you with your audience. But for a product, it's absolutely crucial that, you, you know, you talk, talk to your customers all the time, and preferably before you spend any money.
0: Mm, sound advice. So what were you buying at this stage, and who were you selling to?
1: I was sending to interior designers, I, because I when I was in sales, I uh, tended to work for recruitment companies, estate agents, people who did very much the same thing over and over again. And so I, that seemed to me a good setup. I'd done other jobs like wine or sandwiches or... Catering stuff, all sorts of things, but but I wanted something that was dealing with B two B, and that it would be mostly based on the relationship between me and a regular person who would come back to me on a different, on a on a regular basis.
0: So it was interior designers, and mm. you were finding the furniture for them.
1: Exactly, you know. I thought they must surely like the idea of not having to bother as much in finding what they want Um, and of course that seems like quite a good idea to them too
0: okay so then what happened you have the ongoing problem of sourcing stock so you think i tell you what i'll set up a business for myself and make it
1: it took a while i mean well it didn't it didn't take a while for big Problem I hit almost immediately was there were a lot of man- uh, sort of small makers, small cabinet makers near where I live, but most of them didn't finish and they certainly didn't finish in a way that was contemporary. You know, they might p- polish you a beautiful 10 foot oak dining table, but they didn't put on ex- 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 exciting finishes or whatever, which was starting to become very trendy. So the finishing side came first always oh, back with me, uh, or back to front, should I say. Um, but, but, yeah, so, so we set up, or I set up, with a, with a chum doing a bit of spraying initially in another friend's barn, you know, as, as basic as that. Um, and that was the finishing side, which expanded to two and occasionally three people, I think, over the first few years, uh, you know, uh, but it remained fairly small um for those years which was good because the children were still very young and and needed a lot of my time and uh attention and it was later on when i was beginning i guess maybe six years in something like that and the, and the kids were needing me less bar, bar as a taxi service and um you know, I was thinking. Eh, now what could I do more with this business, or should I do something else? You know, what's going on here? Uh, that the by that time we were we were buying most of the furniture from one particular supplier, and and he turned up on my doorstep and um, on Friday, saying, "I'm sorry, I've had enough. I'm going to close my business." And I went, oh, that's that's a bit worrying. But you know, we'll work up something out. And he said, no, you know, you don't understand. I'm closing my business now. And I went, well, you can't do that. I've got finishing I need to next week. You, know, you can't just close. It's what I'm going to. So uh, so eventually, after I advised him, in, lots of cups of tea, lots of you know, hold on, breathe, breathe, and uh, both of us. Uh, And we struck an agreement where I would take a load off him as of the Monday and uh, take over his business as such, but I wouldn't have to pay anything for a very long time because I didn't have any cash. Uh, But mind you, luckily, his business was not worth a great deal because we were the predominant client and his machinery was a tad old, to put it kindly. Uh, so, so Monday morning, I went in and said to the two guys who worked for him, good morning, you know me, I'm the client. Well, I'm not now, I'm your boss. He, again, you know, it's, it's amazing how life changes in business. You know, there was none of the, the transfer of contracts, you know, but of course came much later. It was just, oh, fine, you know, we'll get on with it. In fact, they didn't have a contract because they'd never had a contract for employment. So yeah, so so then I, I all of a sudden I was I, I had these two little tiny businesses really, um, but miles apart. So uh, that took a, a bit of digesting because it was such a rush.
0: So how, it, lo- how long were you running those two businesses?
1: Before I am I mean, I, I think it didn't take me very long. I mean, just on a practical basis, I was permanently, because I, I tended to work at home. The kids were in one direction in school-wise by that time and needing taxi services at all that, The two businesses were a good half an hour's drive apart, you know, and I think speeding tickets alone were <laughs> beginning to <laughs> my <monitor>. up. <laughs> you know, so it just wasn't practical. Um, and clearly not practical. So I thought, well, that's simple. We'll get a tiny, still fairly tiny little unit in the middle. Um, But it wasn't simple because, of course, with my track record, which was still pretty non-existent, nobody wanted to rent little units. And it took me a, a while to find us somewhere. And that was a much bigger place than I'd really intended to take on. But it was dead central, and it did mean it was easy to get to. So right in the middle of, of, of the December of millennial, very easy to remember, and it was snowing. We, there were still only five of us, and we moved into this whacking grape factory unit. And uh, then I thought, you know, how on earth am I going to do this? This is a a factory. What on earth am I doing?
0: So this was December then, 1999.
1: Mm.
0: Okay. So what am I doing? So the next question is, Mm. well, Jan, what did you do?
1: Well, I panicked because uh, (laughs) my first, first many mistakes was the fact that I thought moving, you know, too little farm buildings, was easy as moving house. So, you know, you just sent two vans out, packed stuff in, laid it out in the factory, and off you went. So you'd be back at work the next day. Apparently, so I found out, factories aren't quite that simple to set up. What well, machinery isn't that simple to move. You need cranes and lorries and things. So, I mean, the actual move alone cost me a fortune. And then everybody went. Well, we can't work without building cupboards and you know whatever else we needed and dividers and you know all of a sudden we were not producing anything for weeks, if not months. And I was, I, I was just in such a mess. I mean, I was in so much debt, um, and I couldn't raise any money. money. This, 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 is, this is don't do what I did. Story. Please underline that to anybody listening. Because it was it was as crazy as all this. Um, and I could not get myself out of it. And I didn't dare tell anybody. I didn't really have anybody to tell. I couldn't tell the people who were working for me because they might have panicked and left. I couldn't tell my children because they were too young. And anybody else, I think, I was too afraid of my, of my own stupidity to tell. So I took out a loan off the back of a Sunday paper finance the whole thing and get well, sort of get me out of trouble. Keep us going.
0: Okay. So what did you do with the money from the this loan? Short term well, loan, I guess.
1: It literally kept us going. You know, it paid while we built the um the, the stuff we needed and installed enough um, <coughs> you know, equipment and what have you. Um, and as it went, it, it, it paid off the other debts, but it paid for, you know, it, it, it was clear that the whole thing needed a to total rethink. So I put together a much bigger brochure, much bigger range, really fast. We um, were quickly hiring more people because the sales went, went rapidly up because I, was, I thought the only way out of this is to sell. And, and so I did. <laughs> Well, how did I sell? Uh, and so it did. I mean, you know, and it went up from that five to 20 odd, I think, in a matter of a couple of years, if, if not less. Okay. So rapid turnaround.
0: Yeah, well, this is good. So what's your secret to success with this rapid turnaround then? So you're deeply in debt. You know you have to sell. Now, this can go one of two ways here. <laughs> Because desperation can sneak in and, and destroy your attempts to sell. So what happened in your case?
1: I think the honest answer is be-minded determination. You know, I just, I, I think I was very driven for the children. Um, you know, I felt I couldn't afford to fail because, I mean, the debt was so such a stupid one to take on and it was so dangerous and personally guaranteed we would have stood to lose everything. And I just wouldn't, quite, having committed to doing it, I did debate whether, obviously, whether to sign the papers. But once committed, there was just this, I've got to make it work, come what may. And you know, it doesn't matter if I don't sleep, it doesn't matter if I don't breathe. You know, I have just got to go for it and keep going.
0: I think once one commits oneself, mm. that, uh, th- there are lots of people that would love to do things and think, Jam, how, how did you do that? But I think once you make that commitment, everything changes. I think you're right, Jeff. Yeah, Providence takes over. Mm. So you got out of this debt, you energised yourself, sold this furniture. Now you've got a business that's working. What happened then? Because I said in the introduction, you built it up to 50 employees, won many awards. So let's do that bit before we backtrack.
1: Yeah, we did. I mean, the rapid growth started getting noticed um, and the sales kept on growing. Um, So so the awards started to come and also we ran out of space, believe it or not. You know, having having thought this thing was so enormous, we actually took on a a second factory across, it was a sort of set of factories, as they often are, in a private enclave of of factories. So we took one across the... um, car park from us as, as extra space. Um, and that was curiously difficult actually, um, because you imagine that it's just going to be the same sort of environment and people. Yeah, I mean, it is the same people and the same company and everything is it's just going to be the same. And yet there was something about moving one group of people into one building and leaving another group of people you're nodding you've come across this before uh you know and, and you get a completely split culture really fast absolutely um, it, it you know um it, they became quite, quite quite there was quite a lot of animosity between the two it, it started to be you know it was was their fault over there um you know it's 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 odd. Um and one side was, was easier in some ways than one side was easier in others. But yeah, I it wasn't it seemed like a very easy, wise move to to take on to not pack up one factory, not solve the problems of a not exhausted lease to go easy way to get off space, you know, it was just there, only a few feet away. And actually I would caution anybody else doing that. I think that was probably a big mistake in many ways. And, you know, it, it really divided the culture badly.
0: I've seen that many times as you mm. made reference to me nodding. It's it's a bit like having your first child and then you're going to have another one expecting them to be the same. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, they're not. <laughs> they're absolutely not. They're completely different. Mm. But But what happens... And uh, I have um, many, I'll I'll say friends now, because I've been a consultant and mentor to people expanding. And even when the buildings are next door to each other, when you split the team, oh, it's not my fault, Gov. It's them over there. And we can't do this because it's them. Yeah. That's
1: exactly right. Yeah. And it is it's that curious language comes in of them over there, they forget they were sort of best mates a week before and they become this sort of alien race across a few future tarmac.
0: Yeah, very strange. Mm. Okay, so you built up this successful business, you won many awards, and then you decide I've had enough now. It was a decision that
1: went on back and forth for probably about four four or five years. My initial thought, my, my children obviously got to the stage where they left home. And if you are very ignorant and you go on in a business a very long time, you do learn an awful lot, but also you learn how much you don't know. And so I started going on courses and learning about uh, business, which was, (laughs) I mean, I can't put it any better than that, really, because, you know, I'd never had any formal training.
0: So you've been in business for 20 years and you think, I tell you what, I think (laughs) I'll go on a training course now to learn about business.
1: I did warn you, I always do things backwards.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Most of my delegates are like this, John. (laughs)
1: yeah I mean it was it was absolutely fascinating and I loved every minute of it um you know I got it got so uh, you know I can be a bit geeky and the actual machinations of it really really fascinated me but I think one of the issues was that the more I learned the more I could see where the foundations of that business I mean from for example the two buildings you know I've Quickly realized how big a mistake that was, but what you do, you've got two buildings and two, two long-term leases, you know, and so the complications of trying to go back uh, and put all the things that should have been done ten years earlier was was something I initially I launched into with ferve and vigour uh, as as I was discovering it and. It actually, I mean, I one particular good course I was on was, was a monthly meetup in London with, with a lot of high-growth entrepreneurs. And it was almost the sort of semi-humorous thing that, I, you know, whatever we discussed of, of finding out what was wrong, or particularly with people, what was wrong, you know, one, one month, I would come back following month and say, you'll never guess what happened because sure enough, I would have found that, that fault. I mean, it could have been anything from being defrauded by your um, accounts person, which was certainly one of them. But, um, you know, um, just because I was learning, I mean, in that case, learning about better check systems, you know, and things you don't necessarily know. I mean, that one is, is a very good example, I think, because people don't talk an awful lot about, um, how how many people are frauded to a small degree uh, in in business um, because they don't want other people to know that they were that easy a target um, you know so um, it's too late now boys so dumb, I'm out <laughs> so I can talk about it all, I, all all I want but you know it it's true and so you don't realise that it goes on necessarily unless it happens to you and or if you go and, go and learn from somebody good who does talk about
0: it. Okay, uh, so let, let, let's rewind then. Mm. We got the foundations wrong, so let's help the Not, not all of them
1: in fairness, of, I got of, some
0: of cor- right. Of, of course, of course. <laughs> but if we're going to give some advice now to people who are setting up in business... Let's begin there. What are, what are the non negotiable rules that we really should have in place and do Absolutely. properly from the outset?
1: Absolutely. Skipping over the don't do two buildings. <laughs> okay, I think the, I mean, the, where I didn't make mistakes um, was let's take the research aspect, which we talked about briefly. You know, because mine was so gross because of my situation. I learned an awful lot about the market and what the customers wanted, but that is something that is really important to do, and, and a lot of people get wrong. So I think that's probably number one.
0: I'm I'm I going think- to expand on that one, and yeah, sure. uh, and I'll let I'll let you uh, talk okay. on in a little moment because <laughs> yeah, go ahead. We're going to talk about your books as well, and I'm going to relate what you've just said to your book and also products because I've seen people go into business with products that they like themselves and they think, oh, I love this, or I love doing this as a service. And they set up in business thinking that they can do well from that product without doing the research or without being trained in business and how to run business and just think, oh, there we go. Now, let me put this into context with a book. So, some people think, oh, I would love to write a book. And they write a book, which is great. Or I want to set up in a business selling, I don't know, let's say I'm a badminton player and I want to sell badminton gear, for instance. Mm. I do know a very successful company who sells badminton gear. <laughs>
1: I mean, <laughs> hello, it's hard hello, to, hello, Chris you know, and if Joe. you're a badminton player, it's a sensible start, isn't it? You yeah, know, it's yeah, following yeah. your passion and all that.
0: Yeah, so a big hello to Chris and Joe. I'm not talking about you guys here. But let's, for instance, let's say we want to set up in that just because you like badminton doesn't qualify you to buy and sell or make badminton gear and to sell it well. It's a completely different thing altogether. Now, if we put that into writing a book, we've had a few guests on the show, and I've been a guest on other shows, and we're talking about what makes a number one bestseller or a good performing business the parallels are, are just there so a book is easier to explain so we've had uh, i've been a guest on other people's show and they say jeff you're a number one bestseller right and i say yes seven times and they say okay so can you help me to write a book and be a bestseller and i said yes of course And uh, this one particular lady, she said, well, I've already written one. Can you help me with my second one? And I said, well, if you've already written one, why do you need help with a second one? She said, because it's not a number one bestseller and I want to learn how to do it. And I said, well, what happened with your first book? And here's the point I want to make. She said, I had this fantastic idea and I thought this is going to be great for a book. And she wrote the book. And I said, did you do a goal? She said, I followed Tony Robbins, Brian Tracy. I followed all of their advice. I wrote my book. I did all of this. It finished. And now my garage is full of books. And I said, okay, and here's the point. I said, what was your goal? She said, my goal was to write a book. And I said, well, the universe delivered. You wrote a book. And she went, Ah, and tears came into her eyes. She said, I get it now. And here's the point I want to make. You need to do the research on what people want, whether it's writing a book, doing the products, going into business and things like that. Understand what people want and give them what they want, not what you want to give them. So this particular lady had written a book that she wanted to write. There's nothing wrong with that but you can't write it and at the end of it change your mind and say, "Okay, now I want this book to be a number one bestseller." Because if you want a number one bestseller, your mindset has to be there before you write a single word. Yeah. So you have no, to I agree. you have to write a book that people want rather than a book that you want to write. Mm. And that's the same in business, which is why I'm picking up on what you've said here.
1: I'm you, in total agreement.
0: Yeah, you have to create a business that people want to buy your products and services from mm. you, not just a passion that you have and you think, oh, this would be a good idea for a business. Oh, this would be a great idea for a book. So that's why I stopped you because it was too much of an important point to miss. And many, you know... Uh, there are so many businesses, I think it's something like 87% of businesses that are set up go bust in the first five years. Mm. It's, it's a massive amount, and that's why. Oh, yeah. That's why. And if you've made it through the first five years, there's no need to jump up and down, scream and shout, because another 80% of those will go bust in the next I know. five years. And it's all because of that. It's about finding out what people want and giving people what they want, not what you want to give them. Okay, I've said my bit now. (laughs) So back to you then.
1: I agree. And in which case I was going to go somewhere else, but I will go on to a a related point, which I had on my list, which is, and I would say and communicating with them because you can have what they want, and fail to make them aware of it in in ways that, I mean, all right, you, you know, get your loud hailer out. But, but you know, actually to, to communicate in a way that people relate to, um, you know, unless, in, in however good the product is and however much they probably do want it, unless you're getting your messages right, they still won't be buying.
0: Absolutely. Back to what we said earlier, if you don't ask, they can't say yes.
1: Yes, it's very
0: true. (laughs) And I've worked with many companies where we've uh, attempted to expand what they sell. And we speak to a couple of the customers and they say, oh, why are you buying this product from another company? Why not buy it from us? And they'll say we didn't know you did that. You did that? Oh, no. and he's. Oh, I see that so many times. Mm. So
1: communication
0: is a big one. Yes,
1: definitely, definitely. And I think there are added layers to that now. We're all so web reliant in that. You know, uh, I know that a lot, of, and I'm sure you do too. But a lot of entrepreneurs I speak to who are get very swept up in the tech. You know, they, they might have a tech background and or they are convinced that the tech is, is going to be the be-all and end-all. But they can have this swanky website, which they've spent God knows how much on, where they've raised uh, an exorbitant interest. But yet, you know, what that website is doing is, for be it flashly, is saying, here we are, aren't we brilliant? Here's a product, isn't we brilliant? Now give us some money which is just as bad as doing it in person because there's no actual relationship there to the customer. No, you know, it hasn't been thought through as to how to make this a special experience for the customer that the customer relates to.
0: Okay, and that's a good lesson. So what do you have next?
1: People. It's got to be people, hasn't it? Um, Always You know, I think uh, this is a mistake I made. Um, And uh, without the right people, you're nothing. Um, I think, for me, I tended to hang on to the original people rather than bring in um, people with more experience, which was was what was needed when we grew, and people who actually wanted to grow, which was also needed. Because a lot of the original people, loved working for tiny companies that we worked when we wanted to and went to a pub on a Friday afternoon. And, you know, it was that sort of atmosphere. They didn't want to work in this fast growth focused, you know, get results, bring in the systems job at all. You know, they were going, well, why? The old life was brilliant. Um, but at the same time, they were saying, but we've been here from the beginning. We know more than anybody else. We've got to be the most senior people with the most senior money. Thank you very much. And that's a difficult quandary, I
0: think. It is. I'm going to share a couple of secrets with you now. We don't like change. No. We think we like change, but one of the biggest destructive problems in business is inertia. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: We don't like change. And here are the seven most expensive words in business, and I bet you've heard them. Are you ready? But we've always done it like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, So that happened I mean, to yes. you when you try and Absolutely. grow.
1: And of course, the more I was learning in the later stages, the more determined I was that we shouldn't be doing it like that. <laughs> and so the more friction there was inevitably by, yeah. with people who'd always been there and didn't want to change.
0: Absolutely. Yeah,
1: so, so that's very difficult. And what I should have done very early is said, look, you are great at making tables or spraying furniture or whatever you know, but I do want to push this company forward. Um, so that's fine if you want to stay and do that. Uh, but you know it does mean that I'm going to bring managers in who you know, or co-directors or whatever who actually understand about company growth, and you know, we we need to sort that out. But instead they were seeing danger lights of she might get rid of us because we don't want to do it. So we'll be very careful and protective about the company secrets and not pass them on to anybody else. You know, so it was it was a difficult time pass with that. Mm,
0: definitely. One of the biggest problems I see is when we have a sales team, it grows and grows and grows, and you need a sales manager. And rather bringing in a, let me say, proper sales manager, we promote someone from within. Who do we promote? Usually the best salesperson. That's a
1: classic, isn't it? It yeah, is not so, it yeah. So
0: there's, two, yeah, there's two big problems here. You lose your best salesperson, and then you've got a terrible sales manager. You yeah. get them to do it a few years, and then you put them on a training course to learn how to do it. Mm. <laughs> And that happens so often.
1: So I know. Often. I've seen that in other companies. I mean, we had a we had a curious, cur- well, for a long time, it was me, uh, and you know, it really was the bit I understood them best, and in in, in every way, and prefer, preferred in many ways. <coughs> um, so, so first it was me, and then actually my son came into business for about five years, and he's also sales oriented, though. So, actually oddly enough he's a better he, he now manages because he has progressed into a I man not for me um he lives in australia but uh he now manages um a, a national team um in australia because he's progressed from being that salesperson to, to a manager uh, but you're right very few people do and uh I've seen disasters. But as I said, that wasn't that wasn't too bad. What, what went wrong was when I'd get somebody in from the outside who was a more traditional sales manager, and particularly because I'd always managed to build it up on the phone, hadn't I, because I couldn't afford in those early days. I mean, whether, whether I wanted to or not is beside the point, but I couldn't afford it a petrol to go and see a client So uh, when I first started. So, you know, I'd had to. Be able to build those relationships on the phone, so I knew it could be done, and you could you'd get a traditional B and B salesperson come in and they'd go, well, you know, what's my budget for going out and seeing all the clients? I said, you haven't got one. Well, I can't get any results. So, yes, you can. Well, I'm not doing it this way. Okay, that's it all. You know. So, yeah, I did clash with a few, a few, a few potential salespeople, but it, it, it wasn't the bit that worried me. I mean, it was the fact that I really never knew enough about making furniture. Okay. Which is a bit of a problem.
0: Okay. So here you are, a salesperson running the sales team, who sets up in business, gets the funding completely wrong, we never borrow short for long-term investment. That's a classic one we haven't spoken about. Mm. There's so much pressure that's forcing you to sell. Thankfully, you were able to do it. You scrape your way through. You win some awards. It sounds like you were not really happy throughout this 20-year journey, even though the business was... Want,
1: yeah. I mean, I look back and think, when when did I start not being happy? Because um, it certainly ended up there. I think, you know, as long as it was providing for me and the children, uh, and, and I'd include, you know, especially late teens, even after they'd left home, you know, then it was so purpose, personally purpose-driven, that I accepted it. I did get absolutely blown out and worn out at some stages from it i mean i remember gosh i don't know when it was um i suppose about 10 12 years in um i mean i got to the got to a stage where i came to a sort of halt for a bit luckily i still have very ble- close people working for me actually it was earlier than that and I, I literally lost my i lost my voice a few times and then i lost it all desire to, to speak and i just didn't speak for for a few weeks i couldn't i just was out of it blown um so that was a constant fight i mean i think if you've been a single parent and built a fast growth business uh and particularly if you were not surrounded by the management support which you should be or family support but we won't go there, um you know then that's a hell of a burden looking back on it i mean, i didn't question it at the time because it just was
0: yeah absolutely but,
1: but it's it's a weight
0: Yeah, that is what happens. Mm -hmm. So the day comes when you think, I've had enough of this now.
1: Well, like I say, that day came in and came out for about five years. Um, You know, I went on my courses and I thought, oh, well, you know, the sensible thing to do is to build this business up and sell it, and that would be my retirement fund. And then the more I thought about that, the more I saw the fault lines, <coughs> excuse me, the fault lines in the foundations. Um, and the more I came up against the most insurmountable ways of putting those right. And so depending on my energy levels, probably most of all at any given time, I would be on a mission to find the right sales, uh, sales deal to sell it and or thinking, you no, know, I can do this. I'll do it, I'll sort it out, it's going to be wonderful. And so that seesaw went on for a long while.
0: Okay, so you get to the end of it, four or five years.
1: Yeah, I mean, I turned down some really, good, well, one in particular, one really good deal, um, you know, right at the last minute, which was as crazy as all that, and I, you know. There's no, absolutely no point in having regrets, but if, if, if you framed it as a regret, it was a damn silly thing to do.
0: Why, why did you refuse the deal?
1: I think there are a lot of reasons. I think there was an element of fear of what now, which I think hits a lot of business people when they're thinking about selling. But most of all, I was—and uh, again, this is a word of caution for which which you will have come across—for for people getting the foundations right. I am now a passionate believer that anybody setting off in business should learn just as much about setting it setting it up as how to sell it, in case they ever want to. Because if that's something you haven't learned it sounds very, very scary. And there are plenty of horror stories out there about how there was something in a small print and I actually ended up costing me money to sell my business and all those. I mean, these stories do happen, even to experienced people. And it, it, it's a whole new world. And, I, I, you know, that frightened me. I didn't feel confident in it. And I'm worried about selling it. Um, and And again, looking back, Knowing much more than I do, that was particularly stupid because on that specific occasion I'd have been all right. But I learned to spot later people who came near that I would not have been all right, (coughs) and so I did turn down later deals, and that was that was 100% right.
0: Okay, so you walked away from it all, you finished, then what happened?
1: Well. You Know it, I was struggling so badly by that time, and a competitor expressed interest in the brand and um, one thing and another. So, yeah, I decided to to walk away very, very fast. Um, you know, I mean, almost on the spur of the moment, and I, I had a firm of advisors, and they were saying, Oh, you know, we, we can sort this all out. And I said, I can't, I just can't. Um, and so, in a matter of literally, you know, not much over a few weeks, I thought right? That's me. I can't can do it anymore. And I was, I mean, I I, I was falling to bits mentally and physically badly. Um, and, I, you know, there is not one hour that it crosses my mind that was a mistake. Um, you know, yeah, sure, if I sold it for a fortune earlier on, that would have been a much better decision. But walking away at the end with almost nothing was still 100% the right decision.
0: Okay, so, so then, then you walked away, and you yeah, were, to use your words, broken.
1: I was, I was. Um, but, you know, it was a fairly, uh, having been broken for a long time and keeping going, it actually took a fairly short space of time, I think, in many ways. for some, No, hold on, let me qualify that. Some bits of me came back fairly fast. Um, because firstly, the, the, at the moment I was—I was like, some of the stress, um, well, 99% of the stress had gone, uh, and that you know, I would get up in the morning and think, "Oh, oh, it's okay," you know, and it was just—it was a revelation after all that time, um, really life-changing. So, so, yeah, and, you know, that, that was that was huge. And, and it takes a while to restructure, um, of course, the life after you've done that for 20-odd years. You know, there is that, well, the door is empty. You know, what, what, uh, what do I do today? Do I want to retire? Um, you know, that was my original plan. Do I want to do absolutely nothing and just walk the dog? Um, you know, and that, that seemed pretty empty after a very short space of time. But equally, I knew that there were restrictions on my energy level um, through health, for one thing, um, left over from business. And what I recognize now, and this is the bit that's taken me much longer. There was a real fear of stepping out there again, I think. Um, putting my head up against the power, uh, above the power pit. You know, I'd, I'd been there, I'd done it, I'd succeeded, as you said, I'd won awards and, you know, become moderately well known locally and everything else, come in for a lot of stick. And you know, I was just very afraid I think of, of living for a long time.
0: Afraid of living? Mm. What does that mean?
1: Afraid of getting out of a comfort zone at all. You know, the dog and you know, my a comfy armchair seemed a very safe place to be rather than to take any risks again.
0: Okay. And how long were you in that place?
1: I think i think it's i'm still shedding some of it um you know and and probably always will to some extent um the more you recognize it the quicker it slows off i think you know the first uh, first step was to try and do something useful again and that was the first book well no, no actually the first 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 thing was to go back to writing articles because i missed doing that my life was happy for me to go on writing. So I went went back to that. And that gave me a weekly focus and and still thinking about business. And I found I quite enjoyed that. And then I got more and more fascinated in looking. I wasn't afraid to look back. never have been. Um, looking at those mistakes in the foundations, looking at where I had gone wrong. You know, we'd got up to... You know, I don't know, sort of just around the two million mark fairly easily. And then then everything had gone crummy. You know, why did it go crummy? You know, I'd, I'd heard about startups not, you know, as you, you were quoting figures earlier, not getting off the ground. Um, but there's less talked about about that next stage. Uh, and I started to think, you know, actually, that'd be a really interesting exercise to find out why that's such a problem. And maybe there's an article or two in there. And that research started to be a bigger project. I don't know whether it was aimed as a thesis or what. It was there wasn't a very firm sort in my mind, apart from the fact that this is something that isn't talked about a lot and is interesting. Um, and so I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs and got their opinions and feedback, and and after a while I thought, hold on a second, I've taken up an awful lot of people's time here. (laughs) You know, I'd better do something slightly more serious with this. Um, So I put together a couple of book submissions, and one of those was to Bloomsbury, and they took me up on it and published a book okay so my first
0: let's have a let's have a talk about this first book then and let's position it properly so it's called scale for success
1: it was it, well, it is it yes, is it's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, because it was pre-pandemic it seems like, like another lifetime of indeed, course, but indeed
0: yes. it does yeah so who is it for what will they get from it and why you
1: Well, I think, uh, why me? Um, For two reasons. Let's work backwards on this. Why me for two reasons? One, because I know the struggles so well, because that was the point I got stuck and really had problems. And I chose to look backwards and rip everything apart and and have a look at what went wrong and therefore went hunting for the answers. So, So that combination of, of research and experience, I think, puts me in a good wicket to, uh, to, to write about it with knowledge. And because I was still um, low in confidence and thinking, you know, why me, myself, I guess, to some extent, I also roped in um, some very experienced entrepreneurs with the knowledge and experience to, to contribute to the book as well. You know so I think between all of us we we've probably had a fairly substantial I remember somebody saying to me this is like an MBA and a MBA in a book. Um you know and and I think I think there's a pretty pretty large amount of knowledge in there but it's for somebody who who you know really understands entrepreneurs and that level of business and wants to look at that leap between 1 to 10 million, which Stephen Kelly, who who you may know of, is is CEO of Tech uh, Tech Nation now. um, But he he calls it the death valley of entrepreneurship, 1 to 10 million. And I think it's a good description.
0: Okay. So we're now reaching to, you've been in business uh, for an amount of time. You've reached a million and now you want to grow to 10 million. Mm. So... Let's summarise if we can. What are the things we should be doing and what are the things we shouldn't?
1: Well, this is the moment you change, isn't it? You morph from being a crazy start-up where, you know, you sort of get by on, um, what's the expression, on a wing of a – I can't think prayer. what it is, but you know what I mean. A
0: wing and a prayer.
1: A, well, that'll do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and, and it's a small company and everybody tr- – Tends to trust each other, and, and you know, you just you you can go up to a, at least a million like that. I think in most companies, and um, everything's very startup, lots of fun, lots of flexibility, um, very unregimented. You can't go on like that, and any bigger, you know. So you're developing this entity in its own, with its own rules and its own style, and. Um, it, you know something completely different and I mean there's the old Michael Gerber thing isn't it work on the business not in the business mm-hmm. uh, and so that's certainly part of it um, and that requires immense changes by you you know because in the in the startup phase if you if you've wandered into this like I did it never would occur to you to put yourself as a valuable Maybe that was just me, but I I didn't think of myself as a very valuable asset who was ought to be spending lots of time on themselves and developing themselves. I thought, you know, I had to work harder than anybody else. And that meant a lot of doing um tedious, often tedious things like writing lists and things, you know, which is not what you should be doing, certainly from that to, you know, one million up. You know, you have got to morph into something completely different. You've got to become a leader, the vision visionary, rather. Um, you know, and and take that step back and and lead everybody else to run your business for you.
0: Mm-hmm, absolutely. I got from what you were saying earlier that. If you were not in this furniture business that you built, it probably wouldn't work if you were not there. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. And th- there's another killer blow because yeah. then you can't get away from it in any way.
1: Mm. Absolutely. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, 20 years of, of being indispensable it might sound wonderful to some people but take my word for it, it is not it is an absolute uh, it's a nightmare, road.
0: yeah absolutely yeah. so Scale for Success is what it's called, published by by Bloomsbury how do we get hold of it, how do we buy that John?
1: I mean, you can contact Bloomsbury themselves or you can leave on to Amazon or ask for it at most bookstores book um, you know Bloomsbury is pretty good at circularizing it around the
0: bookstores. Okay. So then you have another brainwave. I know, I'll write another book. So back in January, January 25th, 2023, you launched Start for Success. So what's this second book about?
1: Well, Start was always an idea in my mind that I mean, I even vaguely talked to Bloomsbury about at the same time as as Scale. You know, because to me, were you know, we're talking business foundations and having the experiences I had, I could see that not only was there a problem, which I addressed in scale, going from one to 10 million, but there was also a chronic problem if you didn't put the foundations in. And Bloomsbury felt marketing-wise that the one to 10 was a better bet and they'd like to try that first. Um, but, you know, it was always part of my original research to, to do, start, and and then it got put on hold and semi-forgotten about, you know, how those things do, lots of notes floating around on your computer or in a back drawer somewhere, and I wasn't sure what to do. And then, of course, the the, the first book came out, as I said, just as a pandemic hit, and none of us knew what, what was going to be in the future business-wise or anything else-wise, bookstores, stores, of course, were all closed, which didn't really help anything very much. And, um, you know, sitting sitting here with loads of time comparatively, but keeping in touch with the business world, I could see this rapid transformation of lots of aspects in business. You have the huge reliance, obviously, on the web, the huge... Colossal move towards sustainability in many people's lives. So obviously, a section of people fighting it. Um, you know, and and the the culture thing of remote and hybrid. You know, there was there was suddenly these vast issues which hadn't been relevant before. And I was looking and thinking, I've just bought a scale, which. You know, I think scale still stands because all the points in there are are still relevant and valid about, you know, leadership and everything else. However, there were gaps that, you know, are relevant now that didn't exist three years ago. So I think a combination of of this itch that there was stuff that I should have written about and and a double itch of uh, thinking, you know, this was an unfinished project, But I'd always wanted to do. Probably rather like getting rid of a business, I suppose. I've I've spent another year going back and forth of Have I got the energy to do a second one? And if so, how do I go about it? Shall I go publishing wise again, or you know, shall I try have a go at self-publishing, which a lot of people have told me to do, which is what I ended up deciding to do this time. which um, the the what wisdom of which is still too early to tell, but we shall see.
0: Well, let's let's have a chat through where you are then. So, your first book. Why did you decide to go to a publisher?
1: Oh, I think that's. I mean, I I'm, I'm aware that I suffer from a terrible. You know, it's, it, bl- blame my mother. You know, go back to the the. the um, in, Shakespeare and Dickens I was read as a child you know that I have a, a huge inbuilt snobbery about um, books and publishing um, and you know therefore for uh, to me it was a huge tick box um, to, to get a proper publishing deal with somebody like Bloomsbury I mean it was it was a lifetime dream
0: okay um, so now you are a published author yeah. Was it worth it? Was the dream? Yes,
1: it was. I mean, it was something I'd always dreamed of doing. So so absolutely, you know, it was it was bucket list stuff for me. Okay. What well, was it practical? Was it financially successful? It's not fair to judge because Bloomsbury are very book, book sale orientated, uh, bookshop orientated. You know, they have reps everywhere going out all over the world selling into bookstores. And, of course, bookstores were closed for the first six months of bookshops were open. Oh, the, the book was out, rather. So, you know, I don't think we'll ever know um, whether it could have been massively more successful. Um, you know, it could certainly have be been more successful. Every business book, as I'm sure you know, or probably not every business book, I am of the expert, but um, an awful lot of business books came a cropper and, and underperformed in comparison to Expectation. Um, the figures were generally atrocious. Um, and, and I said that, well, like I say, well, with no, it would have been different for me, but I was certainly part of the overall trend that um, book on business books performed less than expectation during that
0: period. Because well, Here's a fascinating fact for you. Yeah. How many books are sold on average by an author? So let, let, let's say someone I'm... Um, I mean, a,
1: a sold on average right?
0: Per author. Per author. Yeah. No idea. So so, how many sales does the average book sell? In, in other words, on average. Now, bear in mind, you've got the JK Rowlings in here. Yeah, of course. And yeah. then you've got... But you know what the average is? I think it's much lower than people think, isn't mm-hmm. it? How many copies do you think? So... The listener is going. Oh, I think this. I think that. So, go on. How many?
1: I sh- I should know, but um, but you know, I have to say, I'm guilty of writing for um, love as much as anything. Um, I don't know because I know that an awful lot of people do only sell two or three. So you've got the millions, and you've got the two or three wherever. I told you I was bad
0: at maths to start with. And you the know. average is <laughs> going to. I'm going to push you for another.
1: I'm going to on that one. How many is okay, it?
0: Okay, 400. Yeah. The average book sells 400 copies.
1: Well, in which case, I mean, I was way above that, so you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I'm. I mean, the the pandemic, of course, bookshops were shut. Everything went online. Yeah. And uh, and. W- and we supply online, and our mm. our book sales went down for a year, but then come back with yeah, vengeance exactly. and stuff. But yeah, but I've never done in bookshops. Okay, so your ego was satisfied. You published yes. author. You write your second book. You fulfilled I mean, this itch. So not
1: sure, it was ego. It just was literally a childhood dream.
0: <laughs> okay, so you fulfilled your dream. You yeah. got what you wanted to get. Now, why did you come away from that and consider going self-published? That's a different proposition altogether.
1: I know, isn't it just, I think it's the entrepreneur in me, um, you know, I, it, I wanted to, you know, too many people had told me it was a better, a better way of doing it or, you know, sort of worth looking at, and I thought, well, I've got to explore that and see, but my goodness, it's been a, I mean, there's so much to learn to try and do it properly. You know, but equally, you know, you sit here and you suddenly see your book or you know, on an online store in I don't know, Canada or Australia or wherever, and you think, I I organised that, did I? Wow, I'm learning. <laughs> you know, so um but but it's 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 you're right. I mean it's a whole different different proposition and um a lot of hard work and and i'm massively underestimated the time it would take my goodness did i have to work hard right well, so i working far too hard but you know wow uh, you know i saw x number of months would be a doddle
0: it's a massive project massive yeah. massive <laughs> massive project and then someone has the audacity to ask you for a discount right
1: <laughs> <laughs> that was lucky I'm at the end of a computer otherwise I might punch money.
0: okay your second book Start for Success how do yes. we get hold of this one
1: that one I mean the easiest is still Amazon still online obviously um, and all the other online places for like Barnes and Noble but you name it some bookshops will have it some will order, for you, order it for you
0: okay so you're using these bookstores as advertisements essentially so what happens you upload your information onto a database that gets put into their online catalog someone buys from them how does the book get fulfilled do you get involved in that or do you have it fulfilled? as
1: in the dispatch i'm using yeah. a district distributor um, Okay. i thought about it and i thought no, actually you know again it's it's too physical for me
0: okay Okay, so we're coming close to the end of the show now, Jan. Goodness me, all that time gone already. Time flies, I, huh? I
1: talk my neck was off several times.
0: <kids>, <laughs> so here, here's a question that I ask every guest. Are you ready? Yes. So, Jan Cavell, what is the most important thing you have ever learned?
1: I think it is that being me is okay.
0: Okay. Do you want to leave it there? Do you want to go any further?
1: <laughs> Up to you. I think. I mean, I, I think it's t- well. It's, it's taken me a long time to learn. You know, I'm. Uh, I said to somebody not so long ago. You know, I'm really happy. Where I am um, now, and I wish I'd learned it sooner, but apart from that, you know, I'm comfortable in my own skin. There have been moments in my life where I've got near it, but with too much pressure for lots of different reasons. And, you know, you're told what you ought to be a lot when you're an entrepreneur, I think. And particularly as a female and in a very male-dominated, I mean, I don't want to get too sort of women's lib or whatever here, but as a female in a male-dominated environment such as manufacturing, you are particularly told that, you know, if you do it in a more male way or if you've got male managers or if you... um, if, even if you you know plenty of plenty I had plenty of advice to say if only you were a man you know Goodness um, and and by the time you've had that a lot you you start to try and adapt or try and change who you are or your style and and then you become non-authentic and and it doesn't work Um you know, so, so yeah, there were moments where I, I, I was me. I think in the early days of business, I, I felt confident in being me, and it got eroded. Um,
0: but now you're back. Now I'm back, yes. Okay, so we've heard your story. What do you think are your secrets to success?
1: I think um, probably... Um, I I mean, I did a lot of campaigning and still do for to encourage other entrepreneurs. And I remember being uh, being part of a group who'd been interviewed as to, uh, and one of the things they promised to tell us afterwards was why they, the group of us, had been chosen. And they went round the room and said, "Well, because you, you know, you're brilliant for this and you're brilliant for that." And they got to me and they said, "Well, you're clearly the biggest risk taker." (laughs) I thought, "Oh dear." Um, but um, but I don't think it was risk. I think, I mean, I did take some and some worked out and some didn't. I think you certainly, I do have uh, an ethos and a capacity for very hard work, um, which can sometimes be my downfall. And an absolute blind determination to give things absolutely everything I've got. And I, I think, you know, that's, that commitment is really necessary for success
0: yeah give it everything you got and keep on going no matter what
1: yeah but also know when to call it a day too
0: yeah that's very important yeah one my it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes by winston churchill which is when you're going through hell keep on going i love that quote
1: it's a great quote. It's a great quote. But, you know, equally, uh, I mean, you know, I did do that and, and very much worked on that sort of principle because that's so inbuilt in me. And if, if it had been a little bit less inbuilt, I would have got rid of that business earlier.
0: We live and we learn. Yeah. That's, that's, the, that's the most important. Every time we fall oh, over, yeah. make sure we pick up something.
1: absolutely and I love that you know having the time now to to continue to learn every single day is just such a privilege it's lovely
0: it is it's beautiful and you learn lots when you write a book too don't you
1: you do it is
0: is. it's amazing
1: lots of ways
0: well that's it for today thank you very much Jan Cavell your story and you I've loved it you've been truly amazing thank you so much my pleasure Jeff Well, thank you for listening to Secrets of Success. I hope the show has helped to ignite your passion to be a catalyst for action and giving you the fuel that you need to fulfil your dreams. If you've enjoyed the show, here's the thing. Please share it. Even if it's just one person. Please share the show with just one person. I'm sure someone will latch on to what Jan has said today and think, you know, that was me. I can do it too. Sometimes we just need to hear that someone else has been through all of the stuff that we've been through. So share it, hit the follow button, leave a review. Five stars would be very nice. Because all of those things really do make a big difference to us. Because without you, we can't succeed. So please go ahead and share it with a friend. On another note, I'm always asking for great success stories. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, or you'd like to nominate a guest please contact me at our website at jeff-smith.com. Thank you again, Jan Cavell. You've been awesome. Thank you very much. That's all from me. Thank you again for listening and have a great day.